This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today I'm joined by Simeon Siegel. Simeon's been on before. He's one of our most popular guests, so I am excited for him to be here. Simeon is the Managing Director, Senior Analyst for Retail and E-Commerce at BMO Capital Markets. You probably see him on TV from time to time. Uh, If this is your first time listening, uh, you won't be disappointed. Welcome to the show, Simeon. Man, I'm glad it's audio because otherwise you'd see me blushing. So uh, good good to be back, (laughs) man. Good to be back. You getting ready for Thanksgiving? What do you got planned for this holiday? So I currently have a turkey being brined that I am then going to uh, smoke. So I got tapped. We uh, we got into Traeger last year or so. And so my family and my parents decided to jump on that. And so now I am being tapped with the responsibility of getting this bird through there. Um, I, I think I'm capable of a lot of things. I, this is, I'm nervous, man. This is, this is a, <laughs> a big one. So uh, wish me luck. What about you? Uh, hosting... Usually a big Thanksgiving this year, it's 10, including my family, which is four, two kids, my wife and I, so it's only having six people over. So, uh, And I've already got the tap that some people have a second place they have to get to later. Wow. So it's going to end earlier and uh, it's going to be an easier Thanksgiving. Is that is that a second meal or is that like an early Black Friday lineup to uh, make sure you get the best deals? <laughs> It's like my sister-in-law is coming here, and then she has to go to my brother-in-law's parents' place. They're doing the splitting, you know? I remember I remember we used to uh, – I, I would blame it on work, but I remember when my family, like, we would leave and then start lining up outside the doors. And uh, those, I'm, glad, I'm glad we don't have to do that anymore. Black Friday has changed. Yes. For sure. Um, so, Simeon, tell everybody a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am a retail analyst, which means I get to analyze, watch, chronicle, assess, pick random descriptors of the ever-changing world in retail. What I really like to do is I like to provoke thought. I like to understand and internalize the fact that we are storytellers. We're not fact communicators. And what that means is in retail, we're all consumers first. And that sometimes means that all the things we talk about are actually more of our own biasy than what actually is happening with the numbers. So my team and I try to always go back to the numbers, look at what's actually happening, recreate the story, and then figure out what's going on in retail. And it ended up being a lot of fun. It's a good combination of qualitative and quantitative. And every now and then we uh, we, we throw out a thought grenade that you and I love to, to uh, either catch or dodge. Yes, um, for sure. So anything in particular, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so the interesting thing right now that I'm hoping maybe we can almost put aside is this beautiful thing called inflation. And so I'm sure you and I will get into it, but I think the interesting dynamic is none of us or most of us live through inflation, so we don't necessarily know what it means. And I think trying to think through and remember that inflation just means higher prices normally comes with higher costs, but what it means is higher prices. And that started well before anyone started talking about inflation. So thinking through when apparel is about to enter deflation is uh, our next big question. Got it. 
over the you've done a lot. One of the things I think you've done recently is I feel like you were right about uh, Peloton. That's one you've been all over the news on Peloton, talking about Peloton for a while, and you had shared some of your concerns. You love the brand. You think it's a great brand. You love the product. But you had some concerns about the business model that a lot of people didn't. Uh, can you shed some light on how your thought process, how you got to where you got to, and the market seemed to like not agree with you? You were kind of left in a corner for a while, and then they clearly finally got there. Yeah, I think the last time we spoke, I was I was having less fun with the Peloton call, but it, but it was uh, but again it goes back to the story versus the rhetoric. And the numbers. And so I think Peloton becomes an excellent example for a lot of different things. Peloton is the epitome of a company that misread the pandemic and yet spoke so strongly to their consumers that they were allowed to extend much further. I, I am firmly, I'm, I'm on the public record more times than I want to admit, of stating Pelot, that the pandemic was the worst thing to happen to Peloton, not the best thing. And for a while, people would look at me like I was like I had no idea what I was talking. It just it didn't make sense. Peloton is the number one pandemic darling, and to me, all it did was it, it accelerated, it propelled them onto a stage that they weren't ready for. And so, if you looked at, it is a dangerous phenomenon when the Venn diagram of people that invest in a product overlaps almost entirely with the Venn diagram of people that use the product. Because it got to the stage where we were all anecdotalizing, which I don't think is a word, but we'll go with it, where you'd say, <laughs> and I saw four Peloton vans today. And so you're like, well, if I looked out my door and saw four Peloton vans, then it must be that everyone's looking out their door and seeing four Peloton vans. That's dangerous. And the problem, that's why we have to remember that we're consumers first and that we have our own life stories and, and let's just call them baggage. I use the Peloton a lot. I really liked Peloton. At the end of every report we published, we wrote, recommend the bike, not the stock. Because at the end of the day, the numbers never actually agree. Did you really? I didn't know that. Every time. Every time. I was an all-star bike referrer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was thinking about putting my referral code in the back of every report and like maybe like collecting more. <laughs> but I think that's the lesson. I think like there's a lot of lessons, but I think the story is don't anecdotalize, right? It's good to bring our own perception. It's good to bring our own experiences, but make sure you compartmentalize them. And the numbers that Pel the amount of bikes Peloton was selling and the backlog that they were showing never justified this mega cap platform where they were the winner. And if the pandemic never happened, they just would have continued inching along and we'd be talking about a very different company right now. Interesting. <clears throat> so fascinating. Okay. So I wanted to bring that one up because I felt like every time I turned on the TV, CNBC, you were on and they always wanted to talk to you about Peloton. And so I figure another hurrah of Peloton. But by the way, Chris, you know what? It's actually a great segue into whatever we're going to talk about because normally the beauty of our conversations are you let me know like right, right when it happens. <laughs> so, but before we do that, what you'll love about Peloton is Peloton is the e-commerce of the fitness world, right? Peloton was this story of no one's going to go to the gym ever again. You have this brilliant, beautiful thing called at home, which is reminiscent to however many decades ago we had the introduction of e-com. Everyone said e-commerce is going to destroy stores. And everyone said, well, at home fitness is going to destroy the gyms. 
neither of which happened. It's omni, right? It, it Everything has to mesh in. And once you figure out the appropriate level, that's where you create a new normal. When we go all exaggerating and say there's going to be no such thing as brick and mortar and no such thing as gyms, that's where these conversations get dangerous. Totally. Okay. Here we go. So I want to bring us in. We're going to go the top three things on our minds. So I'll give you, you'll tell me one thing on your mind. We'll talk about it for a little bit. I'll give you one thing on my mind. We'll talk about it for a little bit. And we'll go back and forth. Knowing our conversation, I, I wasn't sure if you were saying we have to guess the top three things on each other's mind. We go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll get us started. So I recently posted about this too on social media, which is, I think at some point we are going to get to a place where the cost of online and in a store is going to be like first class and coach on a plane. And because the, the, the just cash burn going through my wife ordering three returning to paying no shipping, paying no return fee. Like they're, they're losing a lot of money when my wife does that. And therefore I think you're going to see this deck, the, the comp to compete with the pricing in the store is going to be really challenging. And I think you're going to see people are going to have to pay for convenience. Just like if you want a larger seat on a plane, you're going to have to pay for it. You might get, there might be some upgrades some loyalty member where you get upgraded to convenience, just like you might in a plane, but I don't know if you've flown lately, oftentimes you don't get upgraded and you have to pay for first class. And I did this very, very statistically irrelevant <clears throat> thing, which is if I want to order a cup of coffee to my house right now, it's about, depending on where you're getting it from, it's about two to five X me going to the store and getting it in price which is about the same price differential from a first class to a coach ticket. And so I think you're entering this haves and have nots over time. I don't know if it's by 2030, 2025, but I think people are going to have to really pay for the convenience to get everything showing up at their door. I don't think automation and robots can solve everything and there's still going to be a price difference. Are you saying you're going to start charging me to do this podcast virtually unless I start coming to you in person? Is that is that where we're going? <laughs> um, no, we'll, we'll keep that. I, uh, I, keep I, that I think that at the end of the day, what you're talking about goes to the heart of a lot of what we talk about of who has the most leverage, right? If you have what we found from 2008 until let's just say mid-2020, the retailers were constantly seeding ground. Right, you the brick and mortars were constantly seeding ground. In three months, in 2020, in holiday, all of a sudden it all went backwards. All the pricing power reverted back. And so I think the question, and by the way, we saw people not forget about one day versus four day shipping. You had to wait. Let's go with your Peloton example. How long did people wait to get that bike? Oh my God. So I think we mean you can train people if there's something they really want. You can train people or charge people for services. I mean, listen, so let's go Let's go to the most basic example. Costco charges you to walk into their store, right? Mind-blowing, but it happens. We don't think about it. Yeah, I paid them to, to go shop in your store. So people are willing to pay for things that, that you tell them they should if they value them. 
And the question is, do you feel empowered to do that? So I think, I think it, we'll see how it plays, but I think the idea makes total sense. Um, what's one thing on your mind? So right now, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to try to say it in the, um, the, the right way because it'll come off in the wrong way. But I think that whether we are about to go into a consumer recession or not, I think the biggest thing that I'm focusing on is more of replenishment. I think that obviously inflation hurts lower income more than it hurts higher income. That's just math. But I think if we look at what's selling and what's not, it's actually much more of a product variance than a people variance. And what I mean by that is people are spending things, people are buying things and people are not buying things somewhat regardless of income. And again, that's the dangerous comment. So I want, I'm not, not pretending like that, that there's not a higher pressure point for inflation. But at the end of the day, quick replenishment items, milk, gas, anything that you need that you couldn't overstock on last year, you need today, you're buying today, and it costs a lot of money. That's inflationary. On the other hand, you brought them up, so I'll keep bringing them in. Peloton, grills, patio furniture, all these things that are low replenishment, but arguably high income purchases, no one needs anymore. Why? Because they bought a lot of them last year. So for me, what I'm trying to think through is this replenishment arc. I think everything on consumer discretionary and staples is in some form of a continuum, a replenishment continuum. And the question to me is very simply, how many pairs of, how many months worth of sneakers did I buy in the last 12 months? Because if I bought 18, then I have six month time period to work through that replenishment. And that to me is, I think, if you look at what is selling versus what is not selling, it's more product driven than it is people driven. And I think it's an important characteristic. Yeah, that is a important characteristic. Um, and you mentioned replenishment. The way that we used to solve this, because this isn't new, right? You're, you always, if you bought a couch, maybe you didn't need a new couch for a long time. Exactly. The way that people and retailers got over this and got through this in years past is innovation and new products. And that, that, as simple as that to me, Right? That's how the retailer got them to buy more. They don't need a new couch. Well, let's create this new thing because they don't have it, and then they'll need that. And what do you think about, I guess, the, the, the product world as it is today from a yeah, so the interesting dynamic, innovation perspective? Yeah. So the interesting dynamic is there's never been a two-year period where every single person bought a new couch, right? Or every single person right. bought a bike. Or everyone decided, I'm going to become a gardener or get a pet. Or buy a bunch of puzzles. Like, there was a colossal pull forward of spending in a co- in a purely concentrated period of time. Stimulus drove people, gave people a capacity to spend. Pent up demand gave people the desire to spend. A lack of inventory meant they spent more per dollar on what it cost. What that means is we don't have the normal staggered, like, listen, I'm going to innovate on a couch sale. Because I know that there's a new group of people that are moving into homes or leaving college or whatever it is, right? The, the sheer amount of people, those people are lacking right now. And so for right now, and how do I know that, right? So normally, and this will, we're going we're gonna to get into, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go back and forth seas. So I'm going to take number two because this is going to lead into my number two. Dealing with this, like what I'm thinking about now is this excess inventory versus normal excess inventory. Because normal excess inventory speaks to to a, a little bit of what you're alluding to. I made stuff. People saw the stuff. They didn't like the stuff. So I have to clear through the stuff. 
right? Like that's what normal excess inventory means. That's why we promote first and ask later. That's when inventory is up by 5%, right? I missed a season. When inventory is up 50%, no one's voting against my inventory. They're voting against all inventory. And so that means my inventory is actually not necessarily bad. It's just, there's no appetite for it right now. And so this discrepancy, this kind of nuance of today's inventory being excess versus is it the same type of excess as before? And I think it goes back to, it merges what you were just talking about, where if every single person bought their new couch, I have to internalize, I'm probably not selling couches for a couple of years, even if I have them. Right. That's scary. That's scary. What is, are, are, does that concern you? So here's the thing. I, um, I, I've got to figure out how to, like, as a human, that's scary. At the end of the day, if it's going to happen, it's better that we recognize it's going to happen and build the business accordingly. And so what I mean by that is there are a lot of promotions going on right now, right? As a consumer, we're about to walk into the most promotional period of the year, but it's also going to be the most promotional period of the year that we've seen in several years. So as a consumer, you're about to get really good discounts. That's great, right? We're going to get good, good holiday presents. The problem is it doesn't have to happen. So for the businesses that have the wherewithal and the balance sheet, if you can internalize that I bought 18 months worth of sneakers, random number, let's pretend, 18 months worth of sneakers last year, what that means is you need to give me six months before I come back. If you do that, I'll come back and pay full price six months from now. If you don't, if you discount it, there was no price elasticity on the way up. Whatever price you threw at me last year, I took. I'm probably not going to give you price elasticity on the way down right now. doesn't matter how much you... If you bought a grill in the last two years, doesn't matter if it's 50 off. You're not buying another one. So it doesn't pay to promote. So it's sort of... Yes, I think you're right. It is scary. But the reality is if that's what's going to happen, better to be aware of it. Internalize that the revenues aren't coming, not because you're doing something wrong, but because you did something too right last year. And then they'll come back next year and you'll have a great business for it. Well, that begs a question. Like, If you're reading through the tea leaves, it's like, if you don't have to promote, then don't discount and promote the goods. <clears throat> Yet, old habits die hard. Correct. So, <laughs> you, are, are businesses going to promote and discount even though they shouldn't. So I want to caveat with the most important line that it's much easier for you and I to say than for the retailers to actually do. I understand that. Setting that aside, you and I for the last three years have been talking about what are the silver linings of the pandemic? Too many people, understandably, right? Old habits die hard. Too many people are forgetting the silver linings of the pandemic. Too many people are going right back. And the point that, that, Again, you know my mantra. My mantra for the last two years has been sell less, charge more, make more. So at the end of the day, yeah, I, I would say if you have the balance sheet, if you don't need to move through this product and not everyone has that luxury, I would tell you, sit on it. I would tell you for the first time, be an off-pricer, pack it away, bring it back next year. If you've got scented candles, bring them out next Halloween, right? Relabel them. They'll be fine. They still say pumpkin spice, whatever it is. So... Again, easier said than done, and you have to be able to absorb the cost of carrying. You have to be able to absorb the, the fact that you're not going to have that open to buy. But if you can, I think the cost generating a dollar through discounts today will have a very heavy cost tomorrow after you just spent two years of elevating your brand and regaining pricing power.
Well said, well said. All right, you're okay. Uh, I'm going to go in a different spot totally than we've been talking about. Beautiful. So, you know, Kroger's, you know, uh, and Albertsons are working, Kroger's working on buying Albertsons. And it's, you know, we've got a lot of retailers who are stronger than they ever were coming out of the pandemic. You know, they grew top line significantly. Some ups and downs on growing top line X inflation now, even though some retailers are doing well. I think there is going to be, I would think, more moves in M&A. I don't know if they're as big as Kroger Albertsons, but if you're looking for growth and synergies and squeezing that top line, potentially harder X inflation right now, we'll see where we shake out at the end of the holiday season compared to last year, compared to 19. But I would think we're going to see some interesting M&As coming. And this was a huge one to create the, you know, the largest U.S. grocery chain. Um, This is a huge one. And there's a lot of interesting implications from it. But I would think, right, if you're going to see more more of this. And what I feel like we saw a lot of was people who were buying like in the pre-pandemic what you saw were people buying capabilities and skill sets they didn't have right maybe that was you know walmart buying jet or walmart buying bonobos yeah right like all right let's we want to taste this digitally native we'll do this amazon buys whole foods right and they're testing the waters That's not what Kroger and Albertsons are doing. Kroger, this is like market share driven, drive down old school M&A, expense driven, bring in brands they don't have, access markets they don't have. I think you're going to see more of this. I don't know if it's 23 because interest rates, obviously, these transactions are highly dependent on capital markets and interest rates are obviously making it challenging. Uh, But it would seem to me the timing could be interesting for M&A as a growth mechanism. So I think, um, I think she's our mutual friend, uh, Lauren Thomas, formerly of CNC, now of the journal, who today had, I don't know if it was her first front page article. This may have been her first front page byline and knowing Lauren, she's probably had more. So there's our, our shout out to Lauren. But she wrote today an article that I haven't fully read yet, so I won't pretend to synthesize it, where the title effectively said activist campaigns are going to be on the rise now. And so the premise there was there was it was a it was a regulatory comment, but it was also simply the idea that valuations have come in. And so I think if you think about the fact that what you're describing is there's a, probably a confluence of things. There's one. We just had a period where VCs could fund anything. So any technological advancement that suggested they were going to be the pickaxe rather than the miner for retail was was given was flushed with cash. And all of a sudden they're not. And so and then, then you also funded a bunch of brands and you watched all this. So I think that the you're mentioning one of the largest ones 
but you're probably around to something with the smaller ones as well. So I think if we take like sticking with the Venn diagram example, this won't be hundred percent overlap. I'm going to use three circles if I can figure out what the three are, but number one, low valuations, right? So you have the market doing what it's doing. Number two, you just had this huge sales growth period over the last two years that's now stagnated, which means godlike retailers are now confronting their humanity, right? Like they're all of a sudden seeing, again, Peloton was a great example, but you're watching people that just expected the good times would last forever, and now they're seeing a ceiling. So they're looking at their neighbors that have pressure. They're looking at themselves with a top line peak. And then let's figure out if I can come up with a third circle. Um, you're, you're thinking about like in this environment now where it's this awakening, okay, what do I do, right? So to your point, capital markets will be the restrictor. So that might be my opening third circle. But yeah, I think that if you can't grow after growing and you're watching some competition that is now no longer funded, that is in trouble, that would seem to be a pretty good opportunity to pick something up. That's a little bit more of an acquisition than a merger. The merger question will be interesting. Do you have two that are that just feel like the sum of the parts is better than the whole um, than each one? So I, I think it's, it's interesting. I think it's fair. I think you do need the financing to be able to really get this done. So, so that'll be relevant. But I, I think it's safe to assume a lot of people are looking at it. You also remember that all the bankers aren't really doing IPOs right now. So there's a lot of people that are not. Definitely crunching a lot of numbers. Uh, let me. Who would be an ideal candidate to buy Peloton? I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Chris Ressa would would be right there. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, but so like I, I think about this all the time though. Like I'm like, you know, interesting brand, interesting. I'm like, who should. Who should pick these this group up? Whoever it might be. So, so there was a time when people were really pushing for Peloton acquisition. The three companies that were brought up were most com most frequently were Apple, Nike, Amazon. Okay, interesting. Apple is a brand enhancer. Apple's involved in in, in exclusive. Apple like Peloton at its heyday may have fit really nicely with Apple. Peloton as a dwindling engagement losing subscribers, elevating churn, probably less so as a brand elevator for Apple. Nike, Nike, Under Armour. Fitness, wellness, fitness. Yeah, so they've all tried it. They've all tried connected fitness and they've all backed away from it. They don't, they don't want equipment, right? Lulu is the latest one that they're effectively writing down mirror. So that leaves Amazon. Peloton's just inked a deal with Amazon. So if you're thinking about kind of the relationship they, they've done in the past before, like try it before you buy it. Um, Amazon is involved in moving a lot of units as opposed to brand enhancing. Like there, there's definitely, you can make an argument as to why that would that would be synergistic, but you have to really ask, what are they getting? Because if the goal of Amazon is to bring them into the prime family, then you're losing the recurring revenue, which is what gives it value in the first place. So just a lot, a lot of questions, I think. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, the, I'm just curious. I don't know. Have you looked into the Kroger Albertsons one at all? Oh, there it is. Peloton model. Have you looked into the Kroger Albertsons? I, it's less my, I, I tend to focus more on the discretionary side. So I haven't spent yeah. a lot of time. I mean, I'll, I'll watch it in tangentially, but I, I think it's an interesting point. <clears throat> I think that if the capital markets were open right now, that's probably that, again, the third circle that you'll need in the Venn diagram. I think you, <clears throat> you probably have a lot of people doing a lot of work right now, to your point. And the question is, what do they need to get the gates to open up? 
Yeah. Okay. All right, you're number three. What's the, back to you. Back to me. So, third thing on on my mind is a little bit of a corollary to the the one I just had, which is I think one of the things you're going to start to see. And I don't know if it's 23, 24, but you're going to inch, inch our way up. And I think it'll accelerate is, and I'm going to use a word, mature retailers. I don't know what mature is, but are going to open up more and more new concepts. Um, I think, you know, we just, I just saw one that I thought was just really, it's interesting to me. Are you familiar with Maurice's? Yeah, of course. So they just opened up a new store that is, you know, has, um, it's called Ebsy, and it's like a tween brand concept, and it's been in their stores, and they're starting to unleash it, and they have um, more plus sizes for tweens, and the way I like kind of saw it and how it was described, I I was like, I don't know, they really have a competitor. I was like pretty impressed by the concept, um, and they're opening a couple of them they, uh, right now. But I think some of these mature retailers, I don't know that we'll get back to the place where like, you know, the Gap had Gap, Banana, Old Navy, Athleta, and they had all these brands. Yeah. But I or. You know, TJS, TJ Max Marshalls, Home Sense, Home Good Sierra. But I think we are, everyone in the pandemic, like, buckled down to, like, make their existing business better. Efficiency, focusing on supply chain, the tech side, how do I do buy online, pick up in store, all these things where I think we took a step back of, like, innovating new. Yeah. And I'm in this, like, I saw this Maurice's thing and I was like, huh, like, I haven't heard this in a while, like an existing retailer opening a new brand. I'm like, is this coming back was on my mind because I think it should. I think there's an opening right now in the market for it. Um, much, much less heavily dependent on capital markets to do something like this. And so I'm going, I think there's probably, you know, everyone's got like, they focused on inventory, focused on supply chain, focused on tech and buy online, pick up in store. You know, outside of figuring out how to staff stores, which is obviously a challenge, I, I feel like, and this organized crime logistics that has to get solved, I feel like the, the, the right time for new concepts and a lot of retailers are well positioned to do that. Um, haven't talked to a bunch of that are ideating or have something on the back burner. Uh, but I think we're probably going to see more than we think. And I think it's going to hit us. So I think it's interesting. I think like American Eagle has been doing it um, slowly with their uh, offline and subscribed concepts. So like they are, you are seeing this idea yep. like the push. I, I, but I think I don't disagree with how you're framing it. Like I think that if I said the last two years were sell less, charge more, that inherently is defense is the best offense, right? Like 
But at the end of the day, defense doesn't win games. Or is it offense is the best defense? Who knows? But so, but so right now, if the idea is buckle down, improve your business, get healthy, then at some point you have to grow. And so you and I have talked about my team's done a lot of work where we see that for D to C businesses, and I mean D to C versus wholesale, so digital and e-com, that if you own your channel, you peak at around $3 billion in North America. If you have wholesale, you can grow five to six. But the point there is if you internalize that you have hit this peak, then the only way to grow is either your second point of M&A or your third point of introducing new content, right? It's, it gets dangerous when you try to stretch beyond your audience. Whereas if you can actually create a new audience, then that, that's a gold mine. So I think that makes total sense. I think if you believe that you've cleaned yourself up enough, but you also are self-aware enough to realize that, you know what, the growth level is not going to be what it was. It shouldn't be. That's how you stay healthy. That's how you generate cash. Then I think that becomes a successful story. At the, a little bit of a, of a larger spectrum, I think Capri, which owns Michael Kors, Versace, Jimmy Choo, has been one of the very few, John Idol, the CEO of the combined entity, has been one of the very few screaming to, to whoever will listen that he has no plan on chasing market share with margin. That was the old Kors. The old Michael Kors was, let me put a store next to every coach and let me try to steal whatever dollar I can get, even if it cost me my margin, and it ended up diluting the brand. They have since recovered that. So what are they doing? Michael Kors is not supposed to be a big growth vehicle. Michael Kors is supposed to be a healthy cash generator that helps fund Versace's growth. And so I think like this idea, if you can have one part of your business that's this beautiful material cash machine that you can then plow into a growth vehicle, that's gonna be the winning proposition. Interesting. Uh, very interesting. Okay, All right, so my third? what's your third? So my third is a little bit different than, than stuff you and I normally talk about. My third is a little bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tap back, go, go back way back into my college days where I, uh, half of my, I did major in economics, but I also majored in philosophy. So I get to just ramble. So this one's a little bit more philosophical. Uh, it, it's always interesting to me. There are certain things that you and I are never going to be able to prove. Oh, sorry. Never going to be able to predict, right? Omicron, Ukraine, right? Certain things that happen that just are, are, outside of the realm of, of what you, of prediction. On the other hand, you and I knew, right? The entire consumer and stock market landscape got negative Jan 1 of 23. Why? Because we were lapping the amazing involvement, the amazing scenario and environment of Jan 1, 22. Sorry, other way around. Jan 1, 22, we got negative. Jan 1, 21, we were, we were exuberant. Why? Because 1H21, we got stimulus, we got pent up, all of a sudden we got the vaccine, we were out and about, life was great. And so what was interesting was you knew literally 365 days later, you were gonna be your own worst enemy. You knew you were gonna have to lap that. And yet it took us all by surprise. And so I look at these things, there are certain things in our consumer landscape that are not just predictable, they're easy to predict because they already happened. And so, What's so interesting is like, it's very hard for us to embrace the discussion that's going to happen six months from now until it does. And so all right now, off price is all the rage. You and I love off price. It's great structural, but off price is all the rage because Nike has to flood all the market with all this excess inventory. Six months from now, that is going to be clean. We're going to be back at some normalized level. And so what I'm trying to think through is, are we about to walk into another January where we're now lapping the disaster? Right, so is our sentiment about to, to lift? I know everyone's focused on the recession, 
But I'm just wondering if you and I were to think about what have the negatives been over the last 12 plus months in supply chain, exit, the, the inability to get inventory, turning it to getting too much inventory, right? Lapping a, an amazing year the year before. Like, all that stuff goes away. Supply chain is easing. Inventory will clean up. And so thinking through what we know today, the conversation will be six months from now, barring another huge externality, is just something that I think people don't do enough. And that's this fun, interesting conversation that I like to think about. I like to kind of take a step back and say, okay, you and I know the problems and the good things of today, but the reality is we also know what they'll be in three months if nothing changes. There's value in that. Yeah, there is. The, I think, you know, when you talk about human emotion and how that gets involved in this, I think it makes it really, really hard. And then you couple that with, <clears throat> there's a large cohort that tries to be smarter than the market uh, and you wake up surprised, yeah. right? That's, that's, that's what happens. <clears throat> the thing, what I would say is interesting is, you know, we keep, we're so extreme. It's going to be great or it's going to be terrible. Exactly. And I think the first thing that comes to mind is like, what if it's just like, okay, we don't ever predict okay. We either predict it's going to go way up or it's going to go world's over. But there's a part of me that's like, it might just be okay. Yeah. Which is, you know, interesting. And then the other piece is, you know, I was at this, it was a heavy commercial real estate conference and, you know, very capital markets driven industry. And people were, you know, concerned, but I was, I was alarmed by how many people were so, and I'm using air quotes, they were right, it's going to be bad. And then one person was like, well, out of like everyone was like, you know, can we all be right? It seems far-fetched that we're all right. Like, what if it's just not as bad as everyone says? Like, is that even in the realm of possibilities? So, um, you know, not exactly what you were saying. I know, you know, we have the ability to, in some regard, see what's happening based on, you know, the information we have at hand today. And, you know, we don't always do the right things with that information. So my point to to you would be, if I could say to you, tomorrow, there is clean inventory across the channel. And you can get however many HVACs you want. <laughs> what, what would you do differently? And that's my, because I right. promise you, right? My prediction is some point next year, I feel comfortable. I said, I promise. So I'm not going to give you the date that I feel comfortable with, but I promise you next year, inventory will be cleaner and HVACs will be easier to come by because that yeah. does work. And yet you walk into these rooms at the, I was, I was recently at a store driven conference and I'm listening to everyone complain about HVACs. And I'm thinking, if everyone's complaining about them and everyone's trying to grab as many of them as they can, then to go full circle, it's just very reminiscent of Peloton going to their manufacturers and saying, anything you can make, I will take because I need to solve my future demand with current supply. I can't do that. So let me try the reverse. Let me try to solve, create future supply. For current, it doesn't, that's not how the world works. HVACs will be available. Inventory will be cleaner. And to your point, 
retail is never dead and it never had its renaissance, right? That's not how the world works. But my point is simply, if we were to take a step back, like if I were to say to you, do you think I'm going to be wrong that inventory will be cleaner and HVACs will be in better supply next year? I'm going to guess you'll agree. I, I, I agree with you, yeah, yeah. And so the point is, would you do anything different if you internalize that that's going to happen? And that's the step that I think we have a hard time making. And that's what that's what I find interesting. Yeah, for sure. The, the HVAC one hits home, I can tell you that. It really hits home. Um, and the things us and the retailers are doing, the amount of work it's causing, the friction it's causing because of that problem, which by and large probably will go away sometime soon, is, is fascinating to think about. Right. And so the question it's for you is if I said to you, you could order as many HVACs as you wanted today, chances are, and, and you'll get them, you'll be the only one, you'll get them. Chances are you would wildly overorder and you'd be left six months from now having way too many HVACs that could break your business. That's the Peloton. Yeah. Home. What I'm trying to encourage people is to, everyone knows now, right? Me talk, you and I talking about Peloton is not contrarian anymore. So let's use it as the example to realize that whatever problem you're facing now in terms of supply or nuance, will that problem exist six months from now? If it won't, if you can, plan accordingly. Well said. Well said. It, it, you, I, there's a retailer I know who has a who has a warehouse with probably way too many HVACs, way too many, yeah. um, because they got ahead of this. So we'll see. It's a great point. It's a great point. Um, and now they've got carry costs. Exactly. Which, with this, this is not t-shirts. This is really expensive equipment, right? <laughs> it's, it's such a great example. Peloton is sitting on a ton of bikes in a warehouse that they have to pay for. So that inspires them. There's a point at which they'd rather give the bikes away than have to pay for them. This is any example of supply-demand mismatch. And it's just so exaggerated that we can we can stay attuned to it. So to anyone listening that's having some version of this supply chain constraint, make sure you're not going to chase right into the end of the demand. Yep. Well, listen, Simeon, this was great. Thanks for the top three things on your mind. Really appreciate it. Um, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. You too, bud. You wish me luck on my bird? Oh, good luck on your bird, man. I'm, I'm so jealous you have a Traeger. You know, Are what? you going to do the whole thing from your phone? Everything. It's beautiful. It's like, it's, it's the Peloton of bikes. Let's go the other side. It's like, I don't, have to, I don't have to know how to do anything, and I come out a hero. So the problem is then I, I, cool. I absorb. When I say that too many times, I find myself brining a turkey with no business doing so. So wish me luck. <laughs> good luck, man. Save me a piece. I'll talk to you. Done. Good to see you. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.